0: Whether we're talking about the fear of failure or anything else holding you back, confidence is the key to unleashing your power. Welcome to Confident with me, Sherry West, and my fearless daughter, Olivia. The world needs confident, inclusive leaders who embrace diversity to rise up. The time is now. Join us.
1: Welcome to Episode 8, Fiercely Love Yourself. Welcome, welcome,
0: everyone. Well, Liv, lately I've been on a roller coaster. On one hand, I'm cheering all the brilliant women picked for senior roles in the new administration. But on the other hand, I keep seeing Dr. Jill Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris subjected to gender-based scrutiny.
1: I know. In the recent Wall Street Journal op-ed, which criticized Dr. Biden for using her doctor title, I found myself feeling disgusted. And wondering would this have been written about a man and i think we know the answer yeah. there's
0: more work to be done and let me just say as the daughter of a teacher i believe that educators are heroes yep. and yes some of them are doctors and now we get to listen to i think live one of my all-time favorite interviews me that, that yeah. we've done with the confident podcast um this next guest is just so incredible and her lived experience is so different from mine. Yep. And that's what we all need to do is to really seek out people whose lives are
1: different from our own so that we can Definitely, learn. Yeah. yeah. So let's go. Let's get into the interview. Yeah, let's do it. Julie Lithcott Hames is the New York Times bestselling author of the anti-helicopter parenting manifesto, How to Raise an Adult. Her TED Talk on the subject has more than 5 million views, and she's a regular contributor with CBS This Morning on Parenting. Her second book is the award-winning memoir, Real American, which illustrates her experience as a black and biracial person in white spaces. Julie is a former corporate lawyer and Stanford Dean, and she holds a BA from Stanford, a JD from Harvard, and an MFA in writing from California College of the Arts. She serves on the board of Common Sense Media and on the advisory board of leanin.org. She currently lives in San, in the San Francisco Bay Area with her family. Welcome to Confident, Julie.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Sherry and Olivia. I'm just honored to get to be with you and your community today.
0: Well, I, I just need to fangirl for a moment because the honor is all ours. I have to tell you, I'm a, the parent of three teenagers and I remember so vividly five years ago when I watched your talk and was enlightened as a parent then And now I just finished your memoir, Real American Last Night. I loved it. It's such an important book. I learned so much about race in America and how to be a better ally. And I just can't wait to talk to you more
1: about it. So
0: Liv, do you want to get started with our questions?
1: So I just have to ask, is there anything not in your bio that we should know about you?
2: I love that question. it begs the question, what is a bio? Mm. How can we reduce a human to a set of words? Um, I will reframe it in my head, this beautiful question is, what do we need to know to know you? And I think I would say this, and it really doesn't belong in a bio, but it is very much in my core as a value. I am here to learn and grow and I hope to learn and grow until I draw my last breath. Mm. I never want to reach a state of accomplishment or title or um, reach some kind of summit in my profession that makes me feel like I'm done, I'm good. Um, I'm, I'm constantly interested in my own development as a human. How can I be a better human in, in community with other humans and relationship with other humans? How can I sharpen my skills? How can I acquire new skills? And I think that's what it means to live. You know, to live is an active, it's a verb. And, you know, if we're not growing, I think there isn't really a place of stasis or stuckness very long. If we're stuck, we can start to really wither and decline. So I am interested in, in my own growth and learning, like I said, until I draw my last breath. And I'm interested in that for all of us. And um, so that's one of the reasons I'm so excited to be with you all today. I mean, I think what you're about in the lives of girls is, is really about that living fully into yourself and figuring out what that means. And I'm just here to say it doesn't end when you're done with childhood or young adulthood. I think it's available to all of us.
0: I, th- I think I, I think you just defined yeah. a new motto for live girl, <laughs> yeah. which is to live fully. And you also just just perfectly described a growth mindset, which is something yeah. that we're always encouraging our girls and young women to have. So um, thank you for that. Uh, my question is your book, your memoir, um, given that less than 6% of books r- are written by and about Black individuals, can you talk a little bit about the importance of you writing your memoir, what that meant to you and what that means to the world? Well, um, I,
2: in terms of what it might mean to the world, um, outside of the pandemic, I've had the pleasure of being in actual physical community with people who have read that book or who are, who are interested in this topic. And the shorthand for, for listeners is this is my memoir on being black and biracial in white spaces and sort of the microaggressions I dealt with and the blunt, ex, you know, forced racism I experienced that really harmed my sense of self and then how I kind of deal with that and come out of that. And people will come up to me after I give talks about that book, say they're in the book signing line, they'll kind of linger to the end and they'll be holding back tears and they'll say something like, thank you for sharing your story. It resonates with my story. You shared truths that I have also experienced but I don't really talk about. And I always grab this person by the hand and I look them in the eye and say, I wrote this for all of us. So I think that was the unexpected delight of writing this book. Um, I discovered that I was not alone in having had these experiences and that I could help others on their path by helping them see you're not alone. And the more we talk about this, the more we can unburden ourselves from these memories that are frankly often shameful. We're meant to feel ashamed when we're called the unword, you know, I mean, it's, it's a bullying tactic that can shame us. And... And it shamed me, so I didn't tell anybody, and until I finally wrote a book about it all, and um, so that's that's been um, that's just been a joy, uh, uh, that accompanied my publishing this book is getting to hear from others similarly situated um, who could relate and who felt somehow a little bit better about their journey because of what they knew about mine. Um, I had to write it because I wanted to unburden myself from those memories. And I knew that committing to write them down uh, for myself, and so doing, to summon them back to my consciousness out of wherever they were hiding in the recesses of my spirit and soul, like bring them back to my conscious mind, interrogate it, analyze it, figure out how to accurately, hopefully um, depict the stories um, as they went. Um, That was unburdening my spirit of these things and then I published it I've already answered that question but I would say I don't think you should publish memoir unless you think it can serve others and and I think I've I've just had so many handwritten notes and t- direct messages on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook from people telling me like yes you are serving me uh, in having written this book.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow yeah and Real American is um, self, you self-described You self as your journey from self-loathing to self-love. And unfortunately, in this day and age, seven in 10 girls believe that they are not good enough or do not measure up in some way or another. What lessons do you want young women like myself and like my peers to take away from your memoir?
2: Yeah, yeah. Um... Sorry, I'm writing down, I'm taking some notes and I should have taken notes on the first question because I realized I didn't answer one of the other bits of it. So let me just go back to that, which is um, you know, why there are so few books written by uh, black people so few memoirs in the grand scheme. And um, I think what my memoir offers in that space is um, that of a person who grew up relatively privileged, highly educated parents, highly ed- I was highly educated. They raised me middle-class. I have light skin, I have in many ways, um, thanks to the support of my ancestors and the community I grew up in, soared over a lot of hurdles that really are impassable for other black people. I managed because things were easier for me in a lot of respects. And yet I still dealt with racism. I still dealt with microaggressions. I still was demeaned on the basis of my skin color. And so my, I think my offering in this space of literature uh, specifically, memoir is, you know, this I think is a Black story we don't hear enough about. Um, so that's um, to that point. Um, in terms of girls, seven to 10 girls don't believe they measure up, seven out of 10. That just saddens me. Um, but so the first thing I'm going to say is whatever it is, it gets better. Um, as we age and come into ourselves, we care less about what other people think and we care more about what our own voice is telling us about who we are and what we want out of this one life. And so part of this is just enduring childhood and adolescence and the various messages that come, knowing that it does get better and knowing that as I age, I will be more in charge of how I feel about myself. Um, And then it's not just about age and stage and waiting it out, it's um, choose friends who are kind you know, the, the the friends who are mean and excluding, you don't want them in your life. They may seem popular and amazing, mm-hmm. but they're mean, you know, just there are plenty of nice people like go be with them. Um, and oh, by the way, those mean people, they're also hurting in some way. There's something that they lack that is making them be mean to others. So we can, I can have empathy for them. But you know, for kids, I would say, like, you don't have to dwell and in, dive into, like, solving their problems for them and turning them into nicer people. Just go sit with the nice people, because the nice people need to band together. And and when nice people band together, great things happen. So bigger picture, it's about choosing friends, but also activities, and also classes, and also sports, and also mentors, where you can show up and just feel this person treats me with dignity and kindness. This person has a sparkle in their eye when they see me, which means they just value me. Um, you know, there are, um, there are people who will see us for who we are and love and cherish us for who we are. And those are the people that we wanna bring into our life. And the others that don't, let them go do their thing. You know, focus on um, deliberately making the choices to be in community with people who are good and kind to you. Mm.
0: I love everything you just said. And at Live Girl, we're all about sisterhood and, and truly giving girl all girls a sense um a place where they can belong. Um, something you wrote in the book really just lit a fire with me about white spaces. And you said that you were trying to construct this black self in a completely white world. And I'd just love to hear your thoughts, Julie, on how we all can do better about Creating inclusive spaces, and that's something that we're really committed to at Live Girl. Yeah. Um, we really, we we really thrive to give girls the opportunity to build authentic bridges to people whose lives are different from their own, to so they have empathy and understanding. Um, but I just love to hear your thoughts on what we can all do better to create inclusive spaces.
2: Well, the first thing, and I think the most important and the hardest thing to talk about is. Um, though nobody listening wanted it to be this way. Our country was really built, created, designed around the supremacy of white people, of Europeans, and um, the second or third tier status of Native Americans and then Africans. That's just how America became America, you know? And unfortunately, many people say, why are you talking about that? That was 400 years ago. And the answer is because the vestiges of that system that way of thinking are with us to this day. Um, we still, you know, all over this country, in every state, in most towns, um, there are people who, whether they realize it or not, they do think that white people are better, and um, or they do think. Let me not frame it as better and worse. They think white is the norm, and everybody else is not the norm. So when people say, "Oh, you know, we want uh, diverse people in our group," that's a little linguistic signal that they think um, a person is diverse. No, a person is not diverse. Each of us is an individual. We have our backgrounds, our fears, our wants, our dreams. Okay. We all have that. We all come from different backgrounds. You can make your group diverse by bringing in people who are from different backgrounds, but no individual is diverse. We're just all individuals. Okay. So that's, if you're, if people are thinking that way, how can we bring diversity in, you know, it's, it's really, it's, you, you can make your group diverse, but you don't treat those people as your diversity. The group becomes diverse when different people are there. I hope that makes sense.
0: Yes, perfectly. Mm-hmm.
2: The thing is, um, you know, in our language, um, you know, I, am a writer. I, I love to read nonfiction, I read fiction less, but I appreciate good fiction of course. Um, and I noticed how many narrators will create a scene where they're talking about a character and they'll talk about character A woke up in the morning and stretched her arms above her head. And, and this is an opening scene of a book and I'm just making this up, but like character A woke up and the sun was streaming through her windows and She got dressed and she needed a cup of coffee and she went downstairs and said hi to the doorman, character B, you know, she's in an apartment, let's say, right, or a hotel. And then, you know, she walked around the corner and saw a woman pushing her two screaming toddlers. And she got into the coffee shop where there was the barista whose skin shone with an ebony of, you know, black. And the point is, we get skin color with character D. Mm -hmm. only. They didn't, maybe they say race, but you know, we get the, the author decided, I need to tell you the race of character D. Readers, you should presume that character A, B, and C are all normal. Okay. Meaning white. Okay. That author is doing that. Okay. Unexamined. They're only mentioning race when it is the other. And let me tell you as a person of color, I just don't like those books because that writer is trying to tell me the world and what's normal is white and we'll call out everybody else. So, so that may seem like not the answer you were looking for, but I think it is an example of how embedded the presumption of the normalcy of whiteness mm-hmm. is in everything. None of those writers, I'm not saying those writers are racist. I'm just saying that's how baked in it is. Okay. About what's normal and what's not. So, um, I think for a group that's, you know, really invested in being inclusive, it's looking at, your language and looking at how you build community and looking at how you reach out to people and not not being one of those groups that's like, oh, you know, we, we really want more people of color to be a part of this. Ask yourself instead, why don't we have enough people of color right now? What is it about our system, about our language, about our way of being, about the communities we started out reaching out to that, that wasn't diverse enough? Why wasn't this a priority for us before? In other words, interrogate your own system in your own way, um, ask yourself, how can we dismantle whatever about it was not inclusive, rebuild it so it is inclusive, it's sort of like if you build it they will come.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: if you build a system an organization an offering that is inherently inclusive, it will continue to be it will, it will become that.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's it's a master class. Yeah, yeah, seriously. And let's talk about the importance of role models and mentors that look like us, because that is something else that is incredibly important and lacking. Um, um, and I'm so excited about the vice president elect Kamala Harris, um, showing that girls and women of color can really achieve anything. Um, and you, when you arrived at Stanford, your first meeting with a Black professor made an impression. And you wrote that if someone who looks like Professor Jackson belongs within Blackness, well, maybe there's a bit of room for me in there too. Can you talk about this?
2: Mm, thank you for summoning the name of one of my first mentors, Professor Cannell Jackson, who died in 2005. Um, He was my resident fellow on my campus, which meant he was a faculty member assigned to live in the dorm with 180 undergraduates. And he would be my freshman resident advisor, but I would go on to be on dorm staff with him my junior and senior year. So he was really the adult with whom I had um, um, the most frequent interaction throughout my college years. Um, That piece that you just referenced is... One where I reveal, so I had grown up in in almost entirely white spaces. I'm now in California and Stanford, Bay Area. And there's this dude, Canel Jackson. It's move-in day. My parents have come with me to college to move in. And he gives kind of an address to the dorm, you know, outside on the lawn or in in the lounge, I think it was. And my parents, who are a black and white couple, my dad's black, my mom's white, they turn to me delightedly after he's done and say something like, it's so great that you have a black resident fellow. And I'm looking at this dude, like he's black because he was so light skinned and you know, your listeners can't see me right now, but I'm pretty light skinned. Um, But he seemed more light skinned than me. Okay. There was nothing about him that told me he was black um, because I was 17 and I'd only been exposed to, you know, a few black people in my family than all the black people on the in the media nobody was this light and I was and I would come to appreciate as I learned more and more like okay so he was from southern Virginia that's why he talks his way uh, He had that sort of southern Virginia drawl and he's he had a complexion that I think um uh that that I learned uh later it was called red bone which is kind of this sort of reddish reddish tan or reddish white almost that um is common to Black folks who live in certain places. And um, so I was just like, wow, okay, he's Black. And my parents knew it. And I think I had thought my light skin meant I wasn't Black enough. And um, it would be years of learning for me to appreciate that your skin color really doesn't frame or define your identity. Um, Mm -hmm. That your identity is really you know where do you feel affinity, belonging, connection, validation, respect, um, all of those things? And I came to appreciate that some of the darkest-skinned Black folks aren't very Black-identifying because they're self-loathing as Black people. Some of the lightest-skinned Black folks are very Black because they're proud of their Blackness. They're not ashamed at all. They're they're celebrating and championing the Black community interrogating issues and questions around how does this affect Black people? Um, and anyway, so I at that point in my journey, I was just very unformed in my racial identity. And seeing the evidence that there was somebody lighter than me who was considered Black um, made me feel like, yeah, OK, maybe maybe there's room in here for me too, as is the phrase you quoted me as saying.
0: Well, and, and, and back to your earlier point, it's sometimes hard for young people to really embrace their own identity, if it's different than what's yeah. in the history book at school or the textbook at school, or because in mainstream
1: media or in
0: or in the media, yeah. right? Good point, Lev. Um, so, so, the, and he says, "I do believe the old ad. you can't be what you don't see." So, um, that's an incredible story.
2: Well, yeah, so, let me, let me, I'm sorry. I just want to, if I may, just say one more thing there um, to the original point of the question: role models and mentors that look like us. Um, help us imagine a future for ourselves. Okay, let's just mm-hmm. be frank. This is why representation matters. This is why as a mom now, you know, I've got a 19 and 21 year old, I'm so delighted when I see little girls who have brown skin. I've seen imagery on Instagram of small girls watching the TV. Mm-hmm. A yeah. parent yeah. has taken a photo of a little girl who just seems to be standing there in awe seeing Kamala Harris. And I know that little girl's world is being shaped by the fact that Kamala Harris has been elevated to this incredible position of respect, leadership and power. And you know, I remember the image of Barack Obama bowing his head all the way down in the Oval Office. So a little black boy Could touch his hair because a little black boy and family were visiting. And the little black boy said, You know, is your hair like mine? Which is such an emotional thing um, because we're told that our hair is wrong and problematic by, you know, by the white community, broadly speaking. And here, this little boy was seeing the president's hair looked an awful lot like his. And he asked, as only a child can, he wasn't a teenager who would have known, like, Oh, you shouldn't ask the president Mm -hmm. such a personal, you know, like, that's not appropriate. He was a child. And good old President Obama, who is so compassionate and caring, bent, he said, absolutely, he bent his head all the way down so this child could touch his hair. And that was you know, um, a life-changing moment for that child and for so many people. And that was another example of why representation matters because that little boy all of a sudden got it that I am like this president in some meaningful ways.
0: Absolutely. And I love that Pete Souza actually captured that moment. (laughs) Exactly. <laughs> but so another thing I want to talk about is that you made a big career change um, from corporate law, which I laughed out loud when you said it was had been sucking the life out of you because having spent uh, 17 years in corporate America, I can relate. Um, you made a change to Stanford administration and ultimately you were the freshman dean there. This big change was guided by the revelation that you realized that you wanted to help humans. I love how you said that. So can you talk about how that risk and bravery paid off? Because I think there's a lot of people kind of just stuck in place because they're afraid to make those types of changes.
2: Yeah, so um, my new book, which comes out in April, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, which is for 18 to 34 year olds, has this chapter uh, called um, Get Out of Neutral, The Tragedy of Unused Potions, which is about getting unstuck. So many of us are stuck. And we got to get unstuck again. Back to that whole—you're not if you're not moving, you're not learning and growing. You're really not living. I'm so stuck in this, is not a good place to be. Um, I also have a chapter called "Stop Pleasing Others." They have no idea who you are, and this is about finding work and claiming your personal identity that are true to what you know is true to you. You know who are you? What are you good at? What do you love? So I am so interested in helping young people feel permission to get unstuck and feel permission to go toward what they want out of their lives. But to your question about the big change, yes. Um, Look, when I was Olivia's age, I, um, well, maybe a little bit older. Yeah, maybe by the time I was 17, I thought law might be where I wanted to be. I was learning in college. I started college at 17. I was learning about law as a way to make life better for people. And I wanted to be one of those lawyers who would make life better for people who didn't have a voice, who were overlooked, who were marginalized, who were discarded, demeaned, Black folk and poor folk and all kinds of folk who, for whatever reason, are on the bottom in America. And that's why I went to law school. But I can tell you now, having done the work to analyze myself, remember, I'm now 52. I wrote this memoir in my early 40s. Um, mid-40s, where I unpack all the self-loathing that was making me make the bad choices, okay? Um, I made a bad choice in law school. I went to law school to help people. I knew I wanted to be a helper. I thought law was the way, but I was so insecure in law school as a young woman of color at an elite place that I was so insecure about what people thought of me when I, you know, what I would do with my degree, I needed the approval of white society. By that point, I was this please white people kind of person. I couldn't have framed it that way then. I only know this because I've done the work that resulted in my memoir. But so looking back, I can say, wow, 25-year-old me was such a people pleaser, so needing the approval of society, by which I mean the white folks who, who run the show, <laughs> mostly white. I needed to go get the corporate offer so they would think I was a person of value. I needed to say, look, I've got this corporate offer. I'm going to get paid all this money and I'm going to go do this work and you can value me. And um, I turned away from my own ideals. I went to law school to help people, to save people. I ended up, or let me put it, let me frame it accurately. I went to law school to protect people. I emerged from law school protecting trademarks, copyrights, Okay, I became an intellectual property lawyer saving those things, like making life better for this trademark instead of like <laughs> the human who's struggling. And so um, I was well-paid and miserable. I had this big reckoning with myself on my back porch. I'm newly married. I'm well-paid and just miserable. I had a knot in my stomach every Sunday at about two in the afternoon, dreading the thought of going back. And um, I'm not trying to knock corporate law, by the way. And I worked with incredibly good and smart and hardworking people it was just not right for me mm-hmm. just like you can be and I, I was doing well i was given you know great feedback and i was being you know mentored i mean it was it was a very good gig but just like if you love math sorry if you are good at math but you don't love it and everyone's like oh you should you should you should go like you should go into stem because you're good at that if you don't love it mm-hmm. you're going to feel like a drone in your own mm-hmm. life you're going to feel well paid or well regarded but miserable and that's what was happening to me. So I'm sitting on my back porch and, and it's pre-internet. I can't easily Google, like, how do I get a better life? And <laughs> I, got, I sit down with myself and I actually have this exercise in my new book, a piece of paper where I write down on, you know, I draw a line down the middle and on one side of the page, I write, what am I good at? On the other side, I write, what do I love? And I'm just trying to spitball. I'm just trying to brainstorm. What am I good at? And this was the first time in my life that I, because I was miserable. I was finally able to say, you know what I'm good at? I'm good at working with people. People come to me, they trust me, they like my advice, they feel seen and heard. You know, I know that. I've always been that person. And maybe maybe that's a skill. So I wrote down like I'm good at, you know, I was honoring these soft skills, these skills back in the day, this is the 90s, we we didn't even have the term soft skills. It was just like, oh, that's what girls are good at. Yeah, diminishing it as a talent because I was so miserable, I gave myself permission to say, you know what? I am good at those things. And maybe those things are skills. I wrote down all of those things on that side of the paper, what I'm good at on the side of the paper. That was, what do I love? That was easier. Cheeseburgers, (laughs) good friends, good fiction, Stanford, Dan, my husband. And I was looking for an intersection of the list. I thought that the right work for me would lie at the intersection of these lists. So it was work with people and cheeseburgers, you know, like flipping burgers was probably not gonna really make my family proud. Like it was working with people at Stanford that became the link on the, that was the clue that leapt off the page. And I set out to work at Stanford with students to help students make better decisions, to help students feel seen and supported, to be for some students like Connell Jackson was for me and other professors, Jim Steyer, of others were for me but i tried and failed three times to get work at stanford okay i now knew what i wanted but i was rejected three times and i stayed at it i just kept iterating learning trying again trying again until my big break finally came and that's that's a story of persistence when you when you know that you're stuck and you know what you want to do differently it doesn't mean it just materializes in the next moment it takes leveraging your network talking to people applying for things, applying again, applying a third time. It just takes persistence, but it's worth it.
0: Yeah. And so another great lesson, not to let rejection stop you. And sometimes you win and sometimes you learn. So (laughs) that's, that's amazing.
1: Yeah. And speaking of being miserable, um, you write about the opposite, the sacred and joyful work of helping others believe in themselves, especially those that have grown up um, feeling like, as you said, the other. Uh, what is the key to helping marginalized people see past these crushing stereotypes? So um,
2: so if one is marginalized, so some people listening are hearing your question and seeing their own internalized oppression in it. In other words, I do feel marginalized. I have been made to feel marginalized. And then others can read your question or maybe the question can be read both ways by some, which is what can somebody else do for a person who's marginalized? So I wanna speak to both because I think you have listeners in both camps. Um, If you are feeling marginalized on the basis of your race, ancestry, ethnicity, nationality, the first language you speak, your socioeconomic status, your gender, your sexual orientation, your religion, what your parents do for a living, where you work or live. These are some of the identities that can cause us to feel marginalized or can cause others to try to marginalize us. Um, I want you to know that you matter. You matter. You belong here. You deserve to be treated with dignity and kindness. And knowing that is a major step toward your own empowerment some of the most marginalized humans in our society who can hang on to, I matter, I am of worth. I am a person who deserves to be treated with dignity and kindness. You know, I I love myself. Those folks make it through. And here I'm thinking of Stephen Ray Hinton um, uh, who was incarcerated wrongly and on death row and was Released finally with the help of the Equal Justice Initiative um, in Alabama. Um, he retained that sense of self despite that most bleak situation he was in. Wrongly convicted, put on death row, managed to get out before they could kill him, but he was incarcerated for, I think, 30 years. And he held on to that sense of self love like, I know I'm worthy if you're religious i know i'm a child of god if you're not religious the universe created me and i have a right to be here um that's that's our greatest strength is self love and as parents of children who may be marginalized in the world because of their skin color because of other aspects of their immutable identity you know we're trying to infuse in our children the sense of you know you are beautiful you are strong you are loved you know you 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 have the right Um, to dignity and kindness, you know, you deserve that. We wanna embolden our children so that when they get out in the world and are faced with with this demeaning stuff, they have that internal voice that says, no, no, no. I belong here. I'm gonna be okay. It's these people's problem. I'm not gonna let how they treat me become how I see myself. That's the first thing. For those who wanna help those who are marginalized, it is, I think we're talking about being allies. Um, To me, allyship is simply committing to treat every human. I keep using this phrase. It's my phrase, dignity and kindness. (laughs) Commit to treating every human with dignity and kindness. Fine. You think you are. Are you really? I think we should all be interrogating that. I have been biased against people. Here you are. You have me as an expert, right? I'm not above bias. I have... America, society, media, other people taught me to be biased against certain groups of people, including my own group, okay? So I have done the work to, and I continue to do the work to rid myself of biases against people I don't really understand or, you know, against people I don't really know, okay? So it's this process of, um, it's a mindfulness process of interrogating your own mind When you encounter somebody and you feel a stereotype coming you can start to notice through mindfulness oh i'm about to stereotype them before you actually do your mind is giving you a message about those people you know you tend to have a a a reel that starts to play a tape that starts to play in your head like oh it's one of those people because of what they look like there's something in your brain that's othering them and you wanna to try to be bigger than your little lizard brain that wants to other them, okay? You say to yourself, I'm about to stereotype this person. Let me see if I can treat them as if they're my child or my best friend or myself. It's it's sort of putting the golden rule into practice in your mind. You say, I'm about to stereotype them. Let me see if I can just treat them as my best friend or as, as I've said. It's tricking the brain. Like it's saying to the brain, don't give me that stereotype, give me something better. And when your brain has decided, you know, I'm gonna treat Olivia like she's my kid, you know, instead of like whatever stereotype I have of her, and I'm just using it, Olivia. I'm not <laughs> yeah. like, you're just here. Um, um, I'm not really biased against you, right? But <laughs> I was like, let me see if I can treat Olivia like she's my daughter. And then my mind changes, mm-hmm. my eyes filled with light. My face might break into a smile of warmth. And I'm basically just offering her now dignity and kindness, which is how hopefully I'm treating my own child, right? So it's it's that. That is how marginalized people want it. That's how all people want to be treated, including marginalized people. Okay, marginalized people are used to people looking at them like, okay, or you loser or, presumption that you're not smart or presumption that you're not capable or presumption that you're a criminal, if your eyes and face and body language approach this person with dignity and kindness, they will feel it. Okay. That is what we all need to do. And I'm going to send you a very radical reframe right now, which is this, whether you're religious or not, this is just sort of a radical reframe. Imagine if whomever runs human existence, whether it's God or many gods or the universe, whatever you believe, what if the system is run by a brown skinned person? Okay. And you find yourself at the end of your life and your, you know, uh, uh, behaviors are being tallied up by the person who judges you or by the people who you hope you'll hang out with in the afterlife or whatever you might believe, like what if they're brown and they kind of look at you like, you know, (laughs) you really didn't measure up when when the brown people were suffering, like where were you? And you would want to say like, oh, wait a minute. You know, there was that one kid I was nice to back in the fort, like, no, what if the entire system, what if the entire system is about teaching compassion by putting marginalized people in our lives. So that homeless person there is actually God. You know, that downtrodden person over there is that like, whoa, I'm just offering a reframe because I think thinking outside the box can help us go, okay, wait a minute, okay, wait a minute. We all just wanna be treated with dignity and kindness. You can't know the backstory of anybody. So why not treat everybody as if they're worth your dignity Mm -hmm. and kindness We're all human beings who are hungry for that. And I do believe we can actually change the world by being conscious about dignity and kindness in our interactions with every single human we have the opportunity to interact with.
0: It's an incredible perspective. And that radical reframe should be kind of the first and last thing that every human on this planet thinks about when they wake up and before they go to bed to guide their thoughts and actions. So thank you for sharing that. And your thoughts on allyship as well. Um, yeah. Very, you are a deep well of <laughs> expertise and wisdom. So thank you. Um, I think we could talk to Julie all Literally day, <laughs> um, but I guess we're getting to the time where we should be wrapping up here. So we all, we always like to wrap up our podcast with just a three quick fun questions to get to know our our um, fierce female leaders a little bit better. Uh, we call them the three wise women questions. And so the first one, Julie, can you just share a, f- a favorite Netflix or current obsession? Um, yes. It and ha- you can't say I don't have any time for anything.
2: <laughs> um, to be honest, Survivor is my current obsession.
0: I watch- They just added
2: that to Netflix, right? Right? When yeah. I first came on, yes, I've been watching it on Amazon Prime, but it is yeah. now on Netflix. When it first came out, my kids were young, were babies. And my husband and I would just like be exhausted at the end of the day and put our feet up and watch this, these people on these desert island, you know, these deserted places like battling with each other. I haven't watched it for years, but some of my former students have been contestants and I had a season. So Angelina Cardona-Keeley in season 37, I think it is, um, is this young woman, woman who's, um who's really brought a lens of feminism to Survivor. She, in her interviews off, you know, where we you're just at the contestant with a producer, um, she has brought up issues of mistreatment of women, sexual harassment, um, and just sort of feminist um, critique generally. And she has begun to change Survivor. And so well. um, she is regarded as having been sort of, the biggest feminist on survivor and her actions are having repercussions in later seasons. I actually feature her in my next book for that reason so I'm I happen to be re-watching her season right now but basically when I work out on my treadmill I watch survivor.
1: That's very cool yeah. And who is your favorite author
2: um Lucille Clifton is a black female poet and her poetry changed my life. I hated poetry until we assigned poetry to the incoming freshman at Stanford and I had to read the book we assigned and um it changed my life. I thought I would begrudgingly be reading it and after an hour and a half I just couldn't believe how much time had passed cuz I was so engrossed. She writes about the black body, about, about black femaleness, about being a mother, about sex and sexuality, like all of these things and I felt seen in her poetry and I felt if she is possible, if these words are possible, then maybe I am possible. And the collection I will encourage people to check out is called Good Woman by Lucille Clifton. She did pass away a number of years ago, but I'm honored that I got to meet her um, uh, when she came to our campus to meet with our students.
0: It's incredible. I And we a
2: literary black mother. I didn't have a black mother, a white mother whom I love, um, but Lucille Clifton is my literary black mother.
0: And we didn't talk about the fact that your memoir is actually poetry. I've never read anything quite like it. It was just, it was incredible. Um, and then the last uh, question is, who do you consider to be the greatest leader of all time, either living or historical? Um,
2: I don't have a person. I know that's a cop-out, but I don't. And that's because I think the people we often put up there as leaders are not people who embody the values that I cherish in leaders. So to me, a leader is somebody who makes other people better, um, who does things to make the world better, but um, is inherently making other people better. Um, And so the person who comes to mind is Mother Teresa, who um, was this amazing woman who who cared for the sick and the poor um, in India And um, uh, she just knew that she didn't have to save everybody, but that she could save a lot of people. And so there was a humility and an effectiveness and an impact um, in that woman. And um, I think countless people, frankly, are doing that work in smaller ways who don't get the spotlight and don't win awards and aren't making lots of money, but they are making our human journey kinder and safer. and with more dignity for others. And those are the people I most admire.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you, Julie, so much for being your authentic and glorious self. And um, we're we're actually gonna be raffling off copies of Real American when we air the podcast. And I just wanna mention your next book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, will be out in April, 2021. And it's all ready for pre-order on Amazon. I noted that last night when I looked. Um, So again, it's been such an honor and we are um, privileged to have learned from you today.
2: I appreciate it. If I could just tell folks, if they wanna follow up with me, check out my website, julielifcottames.com. Julie Hames, without the hyphen.com My social is all Haynes on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I do like to connect. I like to be in community with people who care about the issues I care about. So follow me, check me out, reach out. And Your Turn, How to Be an Adult is the book I am just so proud of at this moment. For 18 to 34 year olds struggling with adulting, I'm here with this compassionate voice, funny, but also frank, like you gotta it's your turn. So let's go. I'm here for you. Let's do it. That's the sort of voice of the book. So I hope if that's resonating with listeners that you'll check it out. Thank you so much for having me. It's been awesome.
0: Thank you, Julie. Thank Thank you so much.
2: Absolutely. Bye.
0: Bye.